Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. I'm excited to have uh, Pastor Derek come and join us and preach this morning. Uh, So thank you, Derek. All right. All right. Good morning. I greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Thank God for this opportunity to be together and worship again. It's been one busy week, uh, and uh, I'm glad that it's almost over, but afraid because the next week promises to deliver more of the same. Uh, but I'm grateful to be with you. I've been preaching a long time, and so um, in sermon preparation, I, I have a, a few feelings. Sometimes uh, I feel the presence of God strongly uh, when I'm sermon preparing, and then there, there are other times where I don't sense God's presence at all. This was one of those times. What I've also learned in my walk with the Lord that uh, my, my faith is not at all dependent upon how I feel. Thank God. So this morning we look at this passage and I've already gotten on David. I told him it always seems that you're giving me these passages. Um, so, so this morning I'm tagging this text, an affair of the heart, the truth about adultery. And what's happening in this passage, we, we're in this series and David is feeding us God's sheep, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in the Beatitudes, and they're called the Beatitudes. It's not that they're, they are the Beatitude. And so in this, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving actually an attitude check on the Pharisees who are proud and self-righteous legalists. And what's happening here, Jesus is rejecting the Jewish oral tradition which always attempted to interpret the Old Testament but always misinterpreted it. And Jesus is doing something here. Jesus takes the seventh commandment, thou shall not commit adultery, and Jesus explains what adultery and, 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 and what sexually, uh, sexual impurity really looks like from God's point of view. And he does this by placing the mind alongside the hand. And he says, he, he, he does that, and, and, and he's saying that, 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 that the source of sin and rebellion against God's law or God's uh, judge commandment is not just what we do physically, but it's what goes on within us. 
And so what Jesus is doing is addressing the inner person as well as the outer. Now, a lot of people are going to hear this sermon on adultery or lust or sexual sin. And, and, and because you may not uh, uh, have performed the physical act of sexual sin, or because you don't indulge in pornography or other forms of sexual impurity, we may presume well that, you know, well, this, is a, this may be a good message, but Derek isn't talking to me this morning. And so we'll be tempted to tune out and think, well, I'm, 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 I'm good. But the reality is Jesus is not just right here intensifying the law as much as he's expressing the real intent of the law. If you look closely, I love this, I, I love this. Jesus is not going beyond. He's actually going backwards. Notice what he does. He traces the path backwards past the front steps of our lives, past the porch, past the living room, right into the bedroom of our hearts, the most intimate place within us. So although Jesus is talking about sexual lust specifically, He's also talking about our disordered desires holistically. Did you hear what I just said? He may be talking about sexual sins specifically in this text, but not exclusively. What he's dealing with is our disordered desires. Therefore, Put your chest down because all of us are guilty of having disordered desires. So what's unique about a Derek Lamar Smith sermon? I only have one point and I unload that one point at the beginning of the sermon. God isn't only concerned about the way you and I act. But he's more concerned about the attitude behind the act. We are good at dealing with behaviors and fruit. And God is interested in the root and the belief behind the behavior. So Jesus does something. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus interprets the command. Watch, watch. Often the law is sorted into three categories. Now, this, is, this, is, this ain't going to be deep, so listen. He sorts it into three categories. Ceremonial law, those were laws that concerned the holy days and the worship of the life of God's people, Israel. And it was especially uh, guided toward the priest in their duties in leading God's people in worship. Then there were the civil laws. These were laws about governing people and laws that shaped the legal system. And then there were moral laws. 
And moral laws are still really applicable to us today because moral laws are truths that are timeless and guide our behavior. They're kind of like curves to keep us in the narrow way. And Jesus is showing the true meaning of the law, but he doesn't do surface uh, superficial stuff. Jesus is showing the ways in which the very religious people have relaxed the law. That, that, that it, it, it's all in what you do. It's all based on your performance. It's all based on what people can see. And Jesus says that the law's intention is not based on the exterior. It's what God is trying to do on the inside of us. The Pharisees had a way of dealing with the law. They would, they would either restrict God's commands or on the other end, they would extend the commands past God's intention. That is, they were legalists. They would restrict the laws, you know, and, and, and manufacture situations where they could get away with things that they wanted to do. Or they would elevate the laws and add more weight to the law and that God intended. We call that legalism. Like some traditions say that you have to uh, dress a certain way or you can't cut your hair or women can't wear pants or you can't drink. Boy, I'm so glad I'm Anglican. Or, uh, 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 or, or you have to go to church on a certain day. Or they, 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 they added certain things. They even had hand-washing routines. You had to wash your hands a certain number of times. It was all ceremonial. It meant absolutely nothing. They were good at perfunctory exercises that were empty and meaningless. And God says to them, and he says to us, that my laws and commands to you are not for you to get caught up and wrapped up in checking off the list that you did something or you didn't do something. Because you can do something and not do something and your heart not be right with God. Jesus is rebuking. Now, what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that lustful desires are identical to lustful deeds. And therefore, a person might as well go ahead and commit adultery. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, that the desire and the deed may not be identical, but spiritually speaking, they are equivalent. So Jesus uses this word, you see it, verse 27, verse 28, look if you look. And, and, and the look that Jesus is talking about here is not a casual glance at a beautiful woman. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. I mean, every uh, man, I don't like, I don't like terms like um, cisgendered. If you really want to just poke me, use dumb terms like that. 
You're either male or you're female. Period. Non-negotiable, non-debatable. Biologically, you can either be one or the other. So, 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 God created beautiful people and beautiful things for us to enjoy and to appreciate, but most of all, to remind us that they came from someone who must be beautiful for us to enjoy and to glorify him. Every time I look at Kira, I glorify God for several reasons. First of all, because she's so pretty. Even in a scrub look, that you know, that's no makeup and your hair ain't really done. And even a scrub look, I, I glorify God that she's beautiful and I get to look at her and I just look at her. And then I glorify God that she with me. Amen, Ryan. Amen. God has given us beautiful people and the beauty of creation to enjoy and appreciate. But the look Jesus is referring to here is the constant, continual stare with the purpose of feeding inner sensual appetites. Can I give you another word picture? I worked on this one. It's as if you're throwing a private party with your eyes in your mind. It was a look that led Adam and Eve to see the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat as appealing, and it drove all humanity into the fallen state of sin. It was just a look. It was a look we read this morning in 2 Samuel that, that, that drew King David when he should have been on the battlefield. It drew him to pursue Uriah's wife Bathsheba to have an inappropriate relationship with her and then attempt to cover it up by killing her husband. It started with a look. Hear me, church. It begins with a disordered desire. So Jesus interprets the commandment. And he says, it's not just about the act. It's about the attitude behind the act. But ne next what Jesus does in verses 29 through 30, Jesus confronts our attitude about sin. This, this is where the rubber meets the road because he, he, he moves from the look. And then verse 29 and 30, he talks about the eye. He gets even more specific. He says, he says the eye, uh, uh, you're going to have to do something with it. And, and this sounds really extreme. You need to get it out. <laughs> Oh, man. Now, the eye which should, which should keep us from stumbling can, in fact, trip us up. My grandmother used to say, when I was growing up in Florida, Cala, Florida, 
the heart of Central Florida. After church, we would go to one of the greatest restaurants on the face of the earth. Not the Waffle House. We would go to Morrison's. Morrison's was a cafeteria. Oh, I, I, can, I can hear the sounds. I can remember the smells. I, we would go to Morrison's and you get your tray and you get your silverware. It's wrapped up in a napkin and you start at the salad end. They have Waldorf salad and <laughs> uh, uh, they had a, a raisin carrot salad, which I didn't ever understand. <laughs> you could get a Caesar salad or a toss salad, and most of all, for a kid, you get jello. Then you work your way on down. You get your main. I always wanted shrimp and macaroni and cheese. And I didn't like it vegetables when I was little, but I was forced to get one against my will. You get a roll or cornbread, and you get your drink and your dessert. And I loaded it up. And my grandmother used to say, you know what? You're not going to eat all of that. You know, you know what she would say, Michael? She would say, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Disordered desires. We always want more of what God says we don't need. Because we forget that we may be 20 or 30 or 70, or, but we're still God's children. And God still knows that your eyes are bigger than your appetite. But what he knows more is that your eyes are fallen and your appetite is a direct match. So while our eyes should keep us from stumbling, our eyes, in fact, trip us up. That's what Jesus means when he uses the term they cause to sin. It causes you to sin. It's that scandalizo. It, it, it's used metaphorically. A scandal is a trip up. And, and, and the parallel saying that, it, that your right hand, he uses, is included is more of an emphasis to make the same separate, same point. He's saying your right eye or your right hand, it, it, listen, if it's causing you to sin, you need to pluck it out and you need to cut it off. Jesus makes his point. Memorable by exaggeration. The self-mutilation here is not to be taken literally, but it indicates that the avoidance of temptation may involve drastic sacrifices. Which may include 
cutting off certain relationships or accounts or media platforms. It may be the renunciation of some of your favorite activities. Because the only alternative uh, that you have, if you don't cut it off, the alternative is the loss of the whole body. Now, of course, you know Jesus is using a figure of speech that we called hyperbole. But there were actually early Christians who took this passage literally they removed hands and feet and eyes and even their private parts. But the trouble with a literal interpretation is that it doesn't go far enough. Removing the limb or the appendage, appendage doesn't remove the sinful nature that creeps around within all of us. So even if you cut off your hand or gouge out your eyes, you would still sin with the other hand or the other eye. And then when all those are gone, you especially sin with your mind. Listen, mutilation won't serve the purpose. It, it may prevent an out, the outward act, but it will not extinguish the desire. So why does God use this figure of speech? Because God wants you and I to take sin seriously. God wants you and I to take sin seriously. Listen, listen, my brothers and sisters. Sin is seductive and enticing. It's attractive. It's appealing. Listen, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will always keep you longer than you want to stay. And let me tell you something. It will always cost you more than you want to pay. We don't take sin seriously Enough. And the reason why Jesus uses such exaggerated hyperbolic language is because he's talking to uh, people who are following him, people like you and me, that we must take sin seriously. Serious. Listen, uh, 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 sin is not to be trifled with. Or flirted with or dallied with. Sin is a severe offense against the holiness of God. Holiness means God ain't like us. He's purer than pure. The reason why we must have a mediator, Jesus Christ, between us and God is because God is so holy that our direct interaction with God would literally destroy us because we are flesh and we're sinful. 
Now we are simultaneously, as Martin Luther says, sinner and saint, but we still have a sin proclivity and we can still sin with steel. Sin is serious business. And it's not just what you do with your hands. It's what's going on inside of you by yourself with your phone. Or while you're watching television, what you're thinking or what you're reading. But we think we're okay. And the enemy wants you to think that. He wants you to think, well, that ain't me. Or I might not be doing that. I'm not, well, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm getting better. He wants you to start comparing yourself to who I don't know, to the, to, to, to the figure you've created in your heart. Sin is serious business. But, 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 but here, here, here's where it begins to turn. Because, David, you gave me this passage, and I was trying to figure out where is the good news in this passage? Where is the gospel? And if, you, if you're not careful, you'll miss it. If you start reading in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, there's this recurring theme and line that Jesus uses, and it is, you have heard it said, but I say. He, if you read Matthew 5, he says that again and again. You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus, what makes this command Jesus gives us in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes different from what Moses gives us in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, what makes this different is Jesus inserts himself. These commands are meant to be lived. Jesus said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not have come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. Listen at that. I came to accomplish their purposes. Moses received the law, you remember, at, uh, uh, in Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of the Ten Commandments when Charlton Heston goes up to Mount Sinai and he goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down and he, he received the law from God. The Ten Commandments, the Bible says, were written by the finger of God. Now, I don't know if that was literally in the Hebrew or if the Hebrew writers were just trying to wax poetic, but I certainly like it. They were written by the finger of God. And so Moses comes down, he receives the commandments, and then he, 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 he delivers the commandments to, uh, to God's people, and Moses judged the people's actions, and, and, and that's the extent of what Moses could do. He could, he could receive, he could deliver, and he could judge, but he couldn't keep the law. He couldn't keep it. He had a temper. He was impatient. He was insecure. All signs of 
a messed up heart. All signs of a fallen nature. But Jesus, Jonathan, is a true and is the true and better Moses. Jesus didn't just give us right interpretation of the law. He inserts himself into the law commands of God by living them out perfectly on our behalf. Jesus fulfills the law or what the word fulfill means. He satisfies the law. It's literally the image of filling a container completely. Jesus completely satisfies the requirements, the expectations, and the obligations of God's commandment to you. Jesus does that for you. He does that for us. Mm. Ah, this is good news. Because until Jesus came, no one had taught or understood or obeyed the commands of God perfectly. Jesus is, listen, Jesus Christ is God's answer. Jesus shows us through his teaching and his life that God, listen, listen, is after your heart. He's aiming at your heart. And, and, and the law is a place where the, 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 the law can't reach. But Jesus can. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 and 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So look what God does for you. He did what the law could not do. He sent his son, his own son, in a body like the bodies that we have. We sinners have. That's you. That's me. And in that body, God, God, declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Why did he do it? Paul asked all the questions and he answers all the questions. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully, there it is, satisfied. How? For who? For you who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So what has God done for you? What does God do for you? We need a new heart, and God has given you one. We get one through the imputed or the transferred righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
When you sin, when you fall, when you are wrapped up in your actions and not paying attention to your attitude, remember what God has done for you. He's given you a new heart. He's transferred the righteousness, perfect life of his son and poured that life onto you and poured your sin and your unrighteousness on his son. What a transfer. God has declared you and me sinners. He's declared us in right relationship with him. Purely by his unearned kindness through the faith that he gives us in Jesus Christ. And he places all on Jesus' accomplishments, all on Jesus' accomplishment and worthiness rather than on your feeble uh, uh, attempts at accomplishing and being worthy. That's the gospel in this text. Jesus inserts himself. That's the good news. When you're struggling and straining in life, the good news for the believer, for you and me, is not that we're perfect. We don't have to be. We fail miserably. But God in his son, Jesus Christ, has inserted himself. He inserts himself in your struggling marriage. And helps you to endure transition and change. He inserts himself in your work environment where there's tension and unhappiness and frustration. He inserts himself in pain and fear and loneliness and betrayal. He inserts himself. That's what God does. That's why, that's why when I read Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30 now, I look at it through eyes of grace and remember that I, I am going to, even in my own strength, I'm going to do everything in my willpower to be faithful to God and to be faithful to Kira. But the only way and the only reason this is possible is not because I have self-discipline. It's because God and his son, Jesus Christ, has inserted himself in my life. But more than that, 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 that wouldn't be enough. God has inserted me into Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the gospel. I'm not going to tell you you need more self-discipline because the problem with self-discipline is when you think you're doing good, you'll be up on the mountain of pride. And then when you slip and fall, you'll feel like you're in the valley of despair. I don't want you to be on the mountain of pride or in the valley of despair. I want you to believe. That's it. That's my application. I just want you to believe that God in Jesus Christ has inserted you in Jesus Christ, just like Jesus Christ inserted himself in this law. Lord, it's your spirit that does the work. 
It's your spirit that produces the fruit. Your spirit, not our grunting or scraping or bootstrap pulling or trying harder and doing better. It's your Holy Spirit that takes your word, your living word. That's who produces the fruit. Now I ask that your word, your powerful word and spirit will transform us as Jesus Christ is formed in us. We ask it all in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.